Welcome to the Beyond Awareness, Disability Awareness That Matters podcast. Here you will find a safe space to learn and grow with leaders in education, disability studies, disability advocacy, and diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations. Specifically, we look at how disability fits into diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how to frame disability awareness in the context of educating K-12 communities. This podcast serves educators, parents, and community members who strive to learn and or teach about disability in a research-based and respectful way. Moving beyond simple awareness and diving into inclusive and socially responsive conversations. Thank you for joining us today. Now let's go beyond awareness. I am so thrilled and honored to have Jonathan Mooney here today. I've followed Jonathan Mooney for many years. I've read his books and I've seen him speak on numerous occasions. And each time I've left humbled and so much more reflective as an educator, sibling advocate, and as a parent. Jonathan Mooney is the author of The Short Bus, A Journey Beyond Normal, Normal Sucks, How to Live, Learn, and Thrive Outside the Lines, and co-author of Learning Outside the Lines. Jonathan, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's really, uh, it's really an honor to be a part of, of this, and uh, I'm inspired by, by your work and your commitment to inclusion, and uh, honored to be a, a small part of that work today. Thank you. All right, so can you just begin by giving us a more thorough introduction? Some of our listeners may not have heard of your incredible work, your amazing words, and your journey. So could you share a little bit about your journey and what you do in the world? Look, I've spent my uh, entire professional life coming up on 22 years now uh, as an advocate for folks with uh, atypical brains and bodies. Uh, That work has taken many expressions. Um, It's manifested itself in uh, writing, uh, trying to help folks think differently about folks who live and learn differently. Uh, It's manifested itself in um, action, uh, developing organizations and initiatives that uh, uh, seek to uh, improve uh, the social conditions of inclusion uh, on the ground um, in real people's lives. Uh, and then it's, it's taken uh, the expression of, of, of advocacy, of, of speaking out um, about uh, uh, institutionalized ableism and uh, challenging uh, systems uh, to think differently and more importantly, act differently towards folks with differences. All of that work uh, all of those expressions comes from my own experience of exclusion uh, because of my uh, atypical brain. Um, you know, I was the kid that uh, couldn't sit still. I was the kid that grew up chilling out with the janitor in the hallway. Uh, I didn't learn to read until I was 12. I grew up with a continuum of diagnoses, uh, ADHD, dyslexia, and others. And generally, I got the message that my, deficient, my differences were deficiencies, Um, And it took me um, and others uh, who supported me 
um, a lot of hard work to extricate myself from that ableist uh, message. And um, I dedicated myself once I came out on the other end, um, proud of being somebody with a disability. I dedicated my life to trying to throw a ladder down, you know, uh, to try to help others who get that message that their differences are deficiencies inside of themselves and try to uh, do my part to build a more inclusive uh, and equitable world. Wonderful. Thank you. So you mentioned that, you know, the, the, the labels are perceived as deficiencies. Many of us are familiar with the diagnostic and statistical manual definitions of learning disabilities and ADHD and ADD. I'd like for you to share a little bit about your take on what it means to experience these learning differences known as learning disabilities or um, ADD or ADHD? Well, first I think we have to uh, name the collective work that uh, we in the inclusion, um, equity and, and disability empowerment work are, are, are trying to do. Um, at the highest level for most of human history, um, atypical brains and bodies have been conceptualized through a deficit pathology lens. You know, normal, and I mean that in the most clinical sense, the middle of the distribution bell curve was good and right. And if you deviated from the middle of that statistical fiction, uh, you were deficient and wrong. And that sort of broad paradigm of different as deficient, uh, obviously, uh, has been applied to uh, whole swaths of human beings who, who, who differed from the center of the bell curve, LGBT, AI plus folks, black and brown folks, uh, economically marginalized folks, and of course, uh, folks with disabilities. And that pathologizing uh, of difference is deeply ingrained in language, it's deeply ingrained in systems, it's deeply ingrained in knowledge. The diagnostical statistical uh, manual is probably one of the best examples of a, a document that, that, that feeds a professional discourse that sees different as deficient. Uh, and subsequently, uh, the result of that different as deficient is a set of actions that are about trying to fix folks with differences. That leads us down a path of trying to make the square peg fit the round hole. So my uh, entire orientation, and it took a, a minute to, to get to this place, I'll be clear about that, because I think we internalized that different as deficient message, and it took me a while to extricate myself from that. But my entire orientation is, is, is a diversity orientation um, that challenges the idea that the middle of the bell curve is good and right, and looks to celebrate um, the uh, folks who deviate from that middle of the bell curve. And that requires us to think of uh, things historically as disabilities inside of people, to think of them as differences that become disabled by the way society constructs schools, work, community. It puts the problem not in the person, but in the environment around the person. And that's how I conceptualize the specific labels that were applied to me, dyslexia, ADHD, uh, anxiety, depression. I see those as a part of the continuum of human difference. You know, the notion of a normal learner, 
the only normal learner is a learner you don't know very well, right? We, we are all on a continuum of learning diversity. The notion of a sort of normal attention span. How do we call one attention span the good one and the other one the wrong one? Uh, those are all social constructs. And so the way I conceptualize it is um, my brain diff differs from the middle of the bell curve. There are challenges associated with that, limitations, weaknesses, uh, disabilities. Of course, I struggle with reading. I struggle with sitting still. Those are neurobiologically based. But the problem isn't in me. The problem is in the way that we conceptualize learning. The problem is the way we conceptualize sitting still as being the good human. The problem is ultimately in the systems that enforce normalcy. And that shift leads us to not just thinking differently, but ultimately, hopefully, acting differently, not trying to fix people, but trying to fix the environments around them. I've heard you say in the past, you know, that we have these labels that are disorders and impairments and defects. And one could say that a child with a learning difference or a learning disability that they suffer from them. Like you said, that there are difficulties associated with it. But you had also said in the past, I've heard you say that you suffered from dysteachia. If I'm saying that correctly, you coined that phrase. And I want us to dive into that a little bit. You know, this is, this is a podcast that is here to support educators and families. So we want to look at very specific situations that have happened not only in your life, but in other students' lives, and how the education system, that institutional ableism, has impacted the lives of students, and how teachers, educators, administrators need to be aware of the effects of what we do in our classrooms and in our schools. Look, you know, there's, when I first got my start, uh, 20, 20, almost 22 years ago, um, when I was an undergraduate in college, people would come to my story, you know, I didn't learn to read until I was 12, I graduated from uh, an Ivy League university, Brown University, with an honors degree in English literature, and people would come to me and say, well, hey, you overcame your dyslexia, and that phrasing pretty clearly implies that dyslexia is a a bad thing right that one needs to overcome and b that it's a limitation inside of me and and by default all who are diagnosed with neurodiversities that needs to be overcome by the individual and i really took issue with that because it wasn't true in my own journey um and i don't think it's true for others uh what i overcame and i said it in a flippant way was dystichia uh, but what I meant by that in a, in a broader, more serious way was overcoming the structural barriers that privilege some brains and bodies over other brains and bodies. And I think that is the shift if we're going to really move beyond just talking about inclusion to actually including folks. That's the paradigm sh shift that has to happen. Um, educators, parents, policymakers have to ask themselves, what are the barriers in the environment that are privileging certain people over others and are excluding folks who don't make that 
definition. You know, I know that's a kind of a macro level thing to say. So let me just make it very clear in my life. Look, ADD difference. My problem was the school desk, right? <laughs> because in our schools, uh, we have passive learning environments where on average kids spend about uh, 85% of the day sitting still. We confuse being able to sit still and raise one's hand and keep their mouth shut as being good, right? And if you can't do that, you get the message that you are bad. The problem isn't ADD, it's that structural embedding of good equals compliant. Same is true with dyslexia, you know? I'm not naive about or in denial about the very real limitations that come with dyslexia. I struggle with reading. I struggle with, with writing. I spell at a third grade level to this day. My problem, however, wasn't the challenge with spelling. It wasn't the challenge with reading. It was being made to feel stupid because I didn't have the so-called normal brain. And there's all sorts of structural ways that we privilege one brain over the other. You know, the smart kid is the kid that reads fast and reads early. And if you ain't that kid, you find yourself in the, the, the stupid reading group. Uh, and then obviously that sort of privileging and subsequent segregation takes its highest manifestation in the form of the resource room and the pull out special education rooms. So our orientation has to be not what's wrong with the person, not how do we diagnose and fix the deficiencies inside of people, but how do we look at the environment and the practices, policies, and behaviors that are privileging certain humans over other humans? And then how do we not just map those policies, practices, and behaviors, but then how do we start to change those to not fix the person, but the learning environment or, or working environment or community environment around the person? Mm, excellent. So that leads me to your idea that we are, our system is fanatically obsessed with that there is one way to learn or that there is one way to be normal and that that leads or that led you to go home and tell your mom or ask your mom, why am I stupid? Why am I crazy? Why am I lazy? And then there's all these other adjectives that we could add to that, that we know that students are asking themselves and their families, you know, why am I broken? Why am I wrong? Why am I defective? Um, why am I bad? Why am I a freak? And you can go on and on and on. Can you talk a little bit about what being part of a broken system does to a student internally and what that leads to? what the statistics are for students when we do not address the inequities present in our school systems. You know, look, I, I've I, 22 years, you know, spoken in, in all 50 states, <laughs> multiple times in almost all 50 states, eight countries at this point, thousands, thousands and thousands of emails sent to me from folks who lived the experience of being told they're not normal. And the consequences are clear. They feel deficient and less than as human beings. There is a deep dehumanization of folks with atypical brains and bodies um, that predates our pathology model. You know, if you look at biblical um, uh, framing of physical difference, 
in 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 most faith traditions, not just the sort of Judeo Judeo Christian tradition, the person with a different body is immoral, evil, etc. So that, that that is just such a deeply ingrained part of our culture, uh, uh, conscious and subconscious. And so what are the results of that? Well, the results of that are folks who deviate from the middle of the bell curve, think they're stupid, crazy, lazy, broken, freaks, less than as human beings. And that um, persistent dehumanization uh, is directly linked to the uh, life outcome data that is so troubling. You know, young folks with atypical brains and bodies uh, have the lowest graduation rates from school. They have the uh, lowest employment rates. They have the highest incarceration rates out of any minority group in the country. Because when you get the message that you're deficient as a human being, well, you give up hope. And then subsequently, when you are immersed in a, in a system that is all about trying to make the square peg fit the round hole, right? Like when we remediate difference, we in some ways try to eliminate difference. And our educational paradigm, um, not, not, not everybody, um, but the fundamental systemic structure of special education is a remediation model. And there's a long history of, of policies and practices to remediate or eliminate atypical brains and bodies. And the highest expression of that elimination uh, agenda was the global eugenics movement uh, that sought to rid the world, not my word, their word, of defectives. And so we forget, um, <laughs> sometimes intentionally, how deeply ingrained um, our antagonism is to different brains and bodies. A and we confuse um, uh, helping with remediation, you know, oh, well, we're doing the right thing. A and I'm not saying that any teacher is intentionally not doing the right thing. I'm saying that we're all swimming in this, in this, this, uh, this pool of different as deficient. And we have to extricate ourselves from that. Uh, if we have any hope of changing those macro level statistics, what leads to folks struggling in life is not their uh, bodily failures, not the problem inside of their minds or their bodies. It's the way that they have been treated and excluded in many of our systems. Beautiful. So if I'm a teacher going to work every day, uh, whether in a pandemic or not. And I have some students who within the system of what's expected of students so that we can teach the curriculum and dot our I's and cross our T's and survive the day with 25, 30 uh, students in our classrooms. Give us some pointers from your perspective, your lived experience and the experience of thousands of others who you have encountered, what are some things that we should not be doing or saying in our classrooms to students? Well, look, first of all, educators are stuck in a flawed system. 
that they didn't design. <laughs> and right. It ain't on them. Thank you, you know? for saying that. Yeah. And, 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 and they have been, um, you know, acculturated in their education and their textbooks. And, and then uh, by the expectations of, of the systems leaders, you know, the number of times I talk to, you know, teachers um, who say, look, you know, the principal walks down pre-pandemic time and, and looks into the classroom and the classroom where the kids are sitting still and everyone's quiet is the good teacher. The classroom where, you know, the kids are, are, are engaged and talking and maybe uh, showing natural human energy is the bad classroom. And what am I supposed to do? Well, well you're, you're right about that. So first and foremost, we all got to understand that we're on the same team here and we all um, want to and have a vested interest in evolving our approach to, to learning um, grounded in principles of equity and inclusion. And, you know, that requires us to, to, to advocate for uh, policy and systems change. Uh, you know, I started speaking um, in 2000, you know, and speaking uh, don't get don't get your idea that it was glamorous. I, I was I was sleeping in on people's couches and uh, going anywhere on a Greyhound bus where somebody would would get together, you know, five chairs in a cafetoria, you know, and that was coinciding with the implementation of No Child Left Behind. And, and I think we don't have a, a proper cognizant understanding of how detrimental that piece of federal legislation was to learning diversity. Uh, because at that point, the, the terms of the game became standardized testing and standardized teaching. And, and I would visit schools in which, you know, teachers would say, I'm handed a script, you know, literally, here, here's the script you're supposed to read. And we uh, disempowered teachers and empowered tests and the testing companies. And we are still trying to extricate ourselves from the damage of that piece of federal policy. And let's make no mistake about it. That was a bipartisan piece of federal policy. That was George W. Bush, and it was sponsored in the Senate by the late uh, Senator Edward Kennedy. And let's make no mistake about it. Obama, with Vice President Joe Biden, doubled down on the core tenets of No Child Left Behind. They just renamed it. And Current President Biden has not articulated any uh, aspirational vision for uh, changing the, the structural terms of what we think of as the purpose of education. So we got, we got, we got to work on that together. You know, we have to advocate on that together. And, and politics matters and who we vote for matters. And the stance of the union matter. So let's all contribute to uh, the systems transformation of that. Now, I know that that is a big thing. So let me just talk about some some day to day things. Look, you know, uh, 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 moving to active learning environments where kids don't spend, uh, you know, 85 percent of the day sitting still, low hanging fruit. It benefits the kids with uh, ADD. It benefits the whole continuum of, of young folks. Uh, Providing speech to text and text to speech technology, which used to be a big old thing because it was expensive and hard to get. Now kids got that on their pockets in their phones, right? Those are 
uh, accommodations that can be made, even within a valuable, flawed system in the day-to-day by teachers on the front lines. And what those represent, and I think this is the path forward in the flawed system that educators find themselves in, what it represents is a shift of thinking, opposed to how do we remediate that problem in the kid? The new question should be, how do we accommodate that difference within the kid? And when we start to ask ourselves that, well, the two accommodations I just articulated, active learning, accessible expression and information access through technology, that's just the beginning. So it all starts from that shift of paradigm, not what's wrong with the kid, what's wrong with the environment, not how can I fix the kid, but how can I accommodate their difference? That's the path forward for uh, a teacher uh, doing a hard job, but doing the most important job. Always been important, but let me tell you, more important than ever, the work that educators are doing. Then we have to walk and chew gum. We got to be able to accommodate in the day-to-day, but then at the same time, advocate together collectively for real systems transformation. Sometimes... Sometimes there are days when teachers say things that impact a student's mental health and well-being. And I'd like for you to share some of the phrases that, and I know that you honor educators. I know that. And at the same time, I'd like for educators to have a very concrete example of what it is that we sometimes say that can have a negative consequence, not only in the moment and in the day, in the school year, but forever for those students, just so that people are aware. And then I'd like to shift that. I'd like to see what, you've already talked about alternative ways of thinking. I'd like to also talk about some of the ways, I know you talked about Mr. Rosenbaum when you were, I think in third grade and what he said to you that made that shifted your whole entire view of learning and gave you perfect attendance in school for once when you had been absent the year before the years before from school and that gave you some hope and some enthusiasm for learning so first what are some things that we don't want to say that we need to reflect on how that comes across to students and then what can we say instead that has positive effects on student learning and well-being? Look, words matter. Words uh, shape how we think and shapes how we act. And they shape how other folks think about themselves. And the good news about that is is, um, it doesn't cost a dollar to change the way that we speak to other human beings. You know, that's within our control on the day to day. Uh, and so I think you're right to name, you know, what are the linguistic expressions that sometimes we use um, unconsciously because they're a part of that long cultural history of different as decision, you know, and, and we've all inherited that language. Uh, and how can we uh, 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 raise awareness about that so we can um, speak differently and subsequently think differently and act differently towards folks with differences. And so you know, in my life, a few of those, you know, what's your problem? <laughs> you know, like, how often is that said? You know, mm-hmm. um, like it was said to me when, 
you know, I, I couldn't sit still in school and my foot would be bouncing. I'd be rocking the drums and the teacher would stop the class and say, you know, Jonathan, what's your problem? Uh, what's wrong with you? You know, that, that had been said on so many occasions to me outside of the classroom by my, my father um, uh, pretty, pretty persistently in, in, my, uh, in my life. Um, the, uh, the naming of certain behaviors as smart or manifestations of intelligence and others um, as not as important, that happens all the time. You know, who's the smart kid in class? It ain't the, uh, the builder. It ain't the drawer. It's not the talker. It's often the reader and the memorizer, right? Th those, are the, those are the groups of students that, that we attach the label intelligence to. And we don't extend or broaden that um, uh, 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 label of intelligence to tactile kinesthetic intelligence, social emotional intelligence, creative intelligence, entrepreneurial intelligence. We all know what gets you in the smart group and it ain't those things. <laughs> it's a narrow band of academic skills. So broadening our our uh, our circle of 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 traits, human traits that we uh, call manifestations of intelligence, um, really matters. And, and then the way that we talk to young folks about their uh, atypical brain or body really matters. You know, I, I remember when um, I was called into the school psychologist's office to to get the test results back, and. Um, you know, it was like a funeral, you know, like the lights were all low, the, there was soft jazz music playing in the background, you know, <laughs> there, there was literally like a box of tissues on the table, you know, because everybody thought we were there to get the worst news in the world. Uh, and then they subsequently read from parts of the, the diagnosis, the test, and it was all deficit this, disorder that, executive functioning this, you know, we gotta, uh, we gotta, we gotta uh, elevate um, our language around that. We have to talk about differences with challenges and good things, right? We don't have to deny the challenges that come with many expressions of, of, of disability, but we also have to um, elevate out of that deficit model. And, and, and that is ultimately what I think the most impactful educators in my life did. Um, they elevated out of a deficit orientation that had seeped into their language at no and no fault of their own. And they replaced it with disability as diversity and by naming the good things that go hand in hand with the very real challenges. So then what are some concrete things that you can say to a child in your classroom who, uh, what, well, what did, let's start with Mr. Rosenbaum. What did he say to you that was so transformational for you? Look, I, I, met, I met this teacher kind of at a super low point, kind of post that uh, funeral for the death of my normality in the school shrinks office. You know, he was a teacher that focused on what, what was right with every student and not just me. And, and he would ask young people all the time, hey, what are you, you know, what are you good at? Like, what do you really care about? What are you good at? And he tried to shift that, that deficit conversation, which frankly, assumes not just young folks with with atypical brains and bodies, but it 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 assumes all young people. It's deeply ingrained in in our approach to education, writ large, transcending ability status. 
And so he, he, he was constantly like, Hey, what are you good at? And, you know, I, I, I had no answer to that. It would be, Oh, I'm not good at anything. You know, like I suck at spelling, you know, I suck at reading all that kind of stuff. And um, he refused that answer. He, he, he never gave up and he, he constantly kept pushing on the idea that I had something right with me. And one day he came to me and he said, well, you know, Jonathan, uh, I've been, I've been watching you and, and you're really, really, really good at telling stories. Uh, now they're inappropriate stories you tell often, <laughs> but, 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 but he didn't care. You know, he's like, look, I don't care. You're really good at telling stories. And I think you could be a writer. And I was like nine or something. And I, and, and I looked at him, I said, Mr. R, a writer, really? Are you out of your goddamn mind? You know, like, like I can't spell. And the guy looked at me and he said, you know, Jonathan, in my class, screw spelling. Screw spelling. Yeah. You know, right on. Like for the first time in, in my life, somebody said, you know, forget what you can't do and focus on what you on what you can do. And that that didn't cost any money, you know. Now the hard work was making time in my day to really honor that, 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 that rhetoric, you know, like that's the hard part in, in this, you know, but I don't want to discount the fundamental um, revelation in my own sense of self and revolution. It became in my education to challenge that deficit model with our, with our words, you know, with, with our language. Um, and then ultimately not just with our language, but with our, with our actions. Yes. Yeah. That's such a powerful story, Jonathan. What he did was he gave you a way, he validated you. You are valid as you are screw spelling. And you've shared that later on in that year, you actually were working on spelling, you know, but at that time he honored where you were and didn't make spelling the equivalent of you being valuable and intelligent. And I just, I just love that. And I think that good teachers change lives and we all want to be that hero. We want to be that good teacher. And sometimes we get lost in the system that you spoke about so eloquently and in administrative expectations and in our previous te you know, teacher training. And so I think it, it's such a valuable story for teachers to hear, for administrators to hear that we need to meet students where they are and to validate them where they are. And like you said, to be open to accommodating and even before that, just having a different mindset that disability is part of, it, it, it's a valuable part of diversity. And so we just need to create environments that are accessible and inclusive for all students from the get-go. And, and that really raises the, 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 the macro question of what, what should be the evolution of our systemic approach to disability and inclusion in school, but ultimately beyond. And you know, if you look at the, the history, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act of 1974-75 was, was a monumental piece of civil rights legislation. You know, before that act, millions of children, um, uh, young people around the, around the country were excluded from education based on 
disability status. And, and this was a, a federal mandate that, that could no longer happen. Unfortunately, it was inclusion through segregation, right? Like it was inclusion through segregated special education programs. And that's not to say those programs uh, weren't a step forward, uh, but they weren't the final uh, step on a journey of empowerment and inclusion. And the, ID, the, the IDEA uh, was followed by the ADA, the, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was a true piece of civil rights legislation. It, it mandated that um, all environments, work, school, community, had to be accessible for the 25% or more of human beings with atypical brains and bodies. And that brought in this notion of not remediating, but accommodating, right? You, you accommodate uh, by building ramps, literal ramps, you know, but metaphoric ramps. And the thing that I think we all know about those ramps, literal or metaphoric, is they don't just benefit people with disabilities. You know, I'll tell you, I've used the ADA mandated ramps in businesses uh, to push my children's stroller, to accommodate for a, a knee injury after too much sports, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So really what we're talking about is universal design of environments. We're talking about uh, reimagining how we organize work, learning, and life, not through the design principle of normality, you know, the myth of the normal human, but through the design principle of the reality of human embodiment. You know, there's a saying in the disability rights movement that I like to amend a little bit, which is we are all temporarily abled bodies, and I like to say minds. We were all experienced disability at some point in our journey, whether that be through the natural maturation process of the of human beings around around uh, a physical disability, the a decline in mental capacity in a traditional sense, or whether that be being disabled momentarily by environments that are not aligned with our particular uh, uh, needs. And so, if we can recognize that, you know, that that disability is the majority minority. <laughs> it, this whole notion that this is something for those people is wrong. It's not for those people, it's for all people. And we can start to design our systems, environments, not around the reality, the myth, the, the myth of human sameness, but the reality of human difference. And that can start. Obviously, that's a, a, a policy and a systems agenda, but that can start in your classroom, you know, it can start with the words that you use to, to, to articulate to others that different isn't deficient. It can start with the accommodations that often don't cost a dime in the classroom. But they, it can ultimately go beyond starting, and it can continue with our advocacy together, collectively advocating for every single human being's right to be different. What a perfect way to end this, Jonathan. Thank you so much for enlightening us and empowering us with your knowledge and your passionate advocacy for all students and all people. Oh, hey, it's it really, really my pleasure to be a small part of your important work, but a uh, even smaller part of our collective important work together. And I was honored to, uh, to be on your program today. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Beyond Awareness, Disability Awareness That Matters. If this was helpful to you, be sure to subscribe, 
rate, and review this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. You can also follow me, Diana, on Instagram at Diana Pastora Carson and on Facebook at facebook.com slash go beyond awareness. Or you can go to my website for more information at dianapastoracarson.com. My books include Beyond Awareness, Bringing Disability into Diversity Work in K-12 Schools and Communities, as well as my children's book, Ed Roberts, Champion of Disability Rights. They can both be found on Amazon. For your free Beyond Awareness resource called The Five Keys to Going Beyond Awareness, simply go to gobeyondawareness.com slash keys. This podcast transcription and podcast guest information can be found in the show notes. Intro and outro music has been provided courtesy of Emmanuel Castro. Thank you again for joining me. Be well, be a lifelong learner, and let's be inclusive. See you next time. Manos arriba,